TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Good morning and welcome to the Morning Briefing for Thursday, January 8th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we'll be joined by AMVETS Executive Director and Marine Corps Veteran Joe Schinelli. He'll be calling him from the road where he is to basically attend one of those lovely town hall meetings that the AMVETS organization holds. I'm also going to talk to a gentleman from the Naval History Museum at Annapolis. That's right, over at the Naval Academy, about a very interesting recent find. You see, it turned out that that museum actually had some pretty amazing things in their collection that they didn't even know about. Yeah, they went digging for something and found something else. What exactly was it? Well, it has something to do with flags, and we're going to talk to them about that coming up later on in the show today. All that and so much more on today's edition of the morning briefing and now of course we welcome jake hughes into the studio jake how are you this morning i'm doing good i'm glad you're feeling better yeah i'm still not great in fact it's probably going to be uh like do the show and then head home <laughs> for me <laughs> but yesterday was uh not good woke up at about three o'clock in the morning thought i had heartburn just felt like really bad heartburn so went and drank some water said okay this is uh this feeling, I guess, a little bit better. Went back into bed. The heartburn came back stronger. And then I realized, like, oh, no, I think I'm going to throw up. And boy, did I for the next <laughs> nine hours or so. Um, you know, and and didn't leave the bed for over 24 hours. I mean, it was it was ridiculous. The bedroom was, uh, was my home yesterday and uh, just a rough day overall. But what are you going to do? So now, uh, you know, the, the, the vomiting and everything else seems to have stopped. So here I am. And we'll... We'll see if I can make it through the full hour and a half. I think I can. Um, but yeah, everything uh, feeling a bit better today. Still not great, but good enough to get in here. Of course, uh, yesterday Jake hosted the show. And how was everything yesterday? Everything went fine. Surprisingly enough, things run smooth when you're not here. I find that hard to believe. But of course it's true. Today, as I said, we're going to talk to Joe Chanelli about what's going on with AMVETS. He's got a, a list of items that he wants to talk to us about today, and we're looking forward to that conversation. And then, of course, the uh, museum at Annapolis. They found some pretty cool stuff over there, Jake, that was in their collection. And sometime around, oh, I don't know, 100 years ago or so, a hundred years ago or so was kind of put away and put away in an odd way that led to them finding it very recently and now uh, getting ready to put it back up on display. Uh, it's a bunch of flags, very interesting flags that they had no idea were in their collection until just a couple of weeks ago, it looks like. So taking a look at news from around the military, this one came out, uh, I read about it yesterday while I was uh, you know, stuck in my bedroom. I had my phone and would try to Keep up on the latest news. The Navy filing homicide charges yep. against the commanders of the McCain and Fitzgerald, which, you know, it's uh, it's rare that that happens. But in these cases, you know, there were so many mistakes made 
somebody needs to be held accountable. And uh, when you're the commanding officer of a ship, everybody on that ship's life is in your hands. It's your responsibility. Yeah, like I said yesterday, crap rolls uphill because it, you, it can't just be a fault of some so, some sailor that missed the ship or something. It's, this is systemic failures on multiple counts that can only point to bad leadership. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. When you talk about a crash, it's what happened that night. You can't say... You can't say anything leading. I mean, unless they were they were untrained and they had, I don't you know, there's a lot of things going on with these ship collisions and and the responses from people. I've heard uh, you know, someone here was talking about an NPR thing where they said, well, they don't get any sleep. We've never gotten any sleep on ships and this stuff didn't happen before. So there's something else that's different now. When I hear that, like, oh, they're working. Um, oh, what was it? What was I hearing? 60 hour work weeks, 70 hour work weeks. I was like. 70-hour work week, you're, you're at sea, it's seven days a week, 70 hours is 10 hours a day. That's not that long. That gives you 14 hours of the day to finish everything else that you got to do. Laundry, sleep, get any training, whatever else done. I mean, engineers have never gotten any sleep on Navy ships. They average you know, two to four hours uh, a day because they don't sleep at night, typically. They're, they're very... Uh, different people, those snipes working down in the engine rooms. But I, I keep hearing some of these things, and I look at it and be like, Dude, that's it. It's always been like this. So what's different now that's causing these uh, crashes? Is it bad training? And I think that that probably has a lot to do with it. I think that they're not. They're, they, I don't know, man. I think that there used to be more repercussions for not doing things the right way, and now in the kinder, gentler Navy, there aren't as many. They're not going to do. Uh, they're they're not going to hammer somebody for not getting a qualification done uh, immediately. Uh, just a personal opinion, but the whole sleep thing, I heard that when uh, it was somebody in here that was talking about the NPR story. Oh, they, they're working 70 hour weeks. Yeah. Seven days. Yet, yeah, Like I, I think people hear that and they assume the same schedule that you have as a civilian or the same schedule that you have in port or whatever, five days a week, Monday through Friday. No, when you're out to sea, that ship is out there every day. You're working every day, seven days a week, a 70 hour work week is actually not bad. Yeah. That's ten hours a day. That's less than what we would work when we're out. And more than that, you just you you formed to adjust to, adjust to the mission. Like I remember, there was a point in my first deployment where there was about a month where we were working twenty four hours in the sector and twelve hours off, hmm. and and that includes maintenance on the tank and every other th stuff you have to do. Yep. So we didn't get a whole lot of sleep, but you know what? We made it work, and that's what I think is bad or what really went wrong with this ship is that if it was sleep it's again failure of leadership but i again if that's always been the way it was you want to tell me they got more sleep in like world war ii you want to tell me they got more sleep in the 40s 50s and 60s there's no way but they weren't having these same issues with these collisions they i think they're trying to find something to blame it on and they're looking at all this stuff but I, from what I've heard from a lot of, uh, and again, I spent very little time and see three out of 13 years on ships, um, you know, and never did a full deployment on a ship. The longest I was out for was like for a month at a time. But from a lot of the, uh, the sailors I know who that's been their life is being out to sea, uh, the, the sleep schedule hasn't changed. Who's in the Navy has changed, I guess. There's different <laughs> people in now. Maybe there maybe some of these uh, youngsters coming in now aren't quite as able to put up with the stresses of, of the military and the stresses of shipboard life. I've heard a lot of different things from a lot of different people who all have different opinions. And, you know, some of them, it, it, 
it may be the captain's fault, but this also could be just somebody made a stupid mistake and crashed the ship into another one. Uh, you know, you could say, well, this, this was uh, bad leadership. It was this, it was that. Well, it hadn't happened before. If it was that bad leadership and the guys had been commanding officer of the ship for two years, then why weren't there any collisions before? It, it, it brings up a lot of questions, but in the end, lives were lost, mistakes were made, and the, uh, the commanding officers of those ships they're the ones who are going to pay the piper, and they are being charged with uh, homicide, essentially, um, negligent homicide, and other criminal charges. There's also an unnamed chief petty officer being filed, uh, having some sort of, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, dereliction of duty charge. So don't know who that is or exactly what it is, but I would guess somebody that was on the bridge on, uh, on one of those ships. So there's also non-judicial punishment. Being actions being taken against four Fitzgerald and four McCain sailors, probably the junior guys involved who, you know, it would be a very bad look despite the fact that their actions may have directly been the ones that, uh, that caused the crash, their actions or inactions. It's a bad look to be going against, you know, petty officer, third class Johnson instead of the commander of the ship. Yeah, exactly. Um, like, like I said, crap rolls uphill. Cause if I had a soldier that got a DUI, they're not going to look too hard at him. They're going to look at me. They'll say, why didn't you teach this soldier not to do that? Why didn't you do your job as a leader here? You failed. You can say that, but you can also say, what if they did teach him how to do his job and he just didn't do it? I agree. I agree with that. But I'm saying be- that's how the military looks at things. Yeah. They try to handle things at the lowest level possible, yes. But at the same time, they look at leadership differently than they do the, the, the rabble, the commoners. Yeah. You know what I mean? Seaman Drifty, that kid out there. Yeah, just Seaman Drifty is the uh, he's the scumbag, basically. Seaman Drifty can't have his uniform right, can't do anything right, but eventually is going to have to be put into some sort of uh, responsible position or kicked out of the military. And it's not that easy for them to kick people out of the military. Look at the story on that Mims kid that we've been talking about, uh, the one who went missing, <laughs> <laughs> the one who went missing on board his ship, hiding in a, uh, a void, which is kind of like a, just an engineering space where there's nothing in there. Um, that kid should have been uh, removed from the military long before that ever was allowed to take place. So it's, it's very interesting. It'll be interesting to see how the trials go. I imagine this will be covered up pretty closely when they actually do go to trial because for one, they were asleep. I mean, it was after their hours and they assume that their people are going to be well-trained enough. And then I guess the question is, well, did you, did you train them well enough? It's going to be very hard to prove. I mean, they're going to have to look through training logs. Then that might lead to some other stuff because if the training logs were ever fudged, if you had like, yeah, we did this training on this day and then someone testifies saying we didn't do that training ever. How could we have done it on that day? Uh, It'll be interesting to see exactly what happens. But those two commanders being charged with that. Seeing another very interesting one, and this comes from our friend that we've had on the show before, Jeff Zizulowitz over at Navy Times, talking about a sailor's suicide attempt that Uh prompted a heroic response by a submarine crew. Crew of the submarine North Dakota is out there charging through bad weather after an unidentified petty officer shot himself in the chest with his military-issued rifle while the vessel was underway. Wow. Yeah. Shot himself, and then the, the the sub basically got back as fast as they could uh, to put him back. And uh, it, it looks like he is going to survive. But uh, yeah, it's. I mean, think about that. <laughs> Get issued your weapon. You're on a submarine. That's one place where you don't expect 
Uh, you don't expect gunfire at any point, and if there is going to be gunfire, it's probably unfortunately going to be self-inflicted. But uh, for them to have to charge back and get this person in there, I, that's whew, boy, that is not good. So the corpsman got him stabilized. Uh, radio men were able to somehow keep communications open, despite the fact that they were in horrible weather. And the commander, Commander Mark Robinson, uh, afterwards says, you know, from gunshot to ambulance, it was about seven hours. We drove up the river in dense fog in the dark of the night with intense rain and wind. Worst weather I've ever seen for something like this. Said he saw tons of heroism uh, over that time. So, yeah, good for them. I mean, that's, boy, that's something you don't think about. A submarine having to get back in. And, they're boy, they're lucky they were within seven hours because oh, yeah. it usually takes quite a long time for those submarines to get from one place to the other, particularly in bad weather. Underwater, they're quite a bit faster than they are above water, but they're also, uh, they've gotten very fast, but still, I mean, seven hours, that, that means that they were fairly close to port, so pretty lucky for them. Then another uh, not not nice story coming out of Camp Pendleton. Did you see this one yesterday, Jake? This is about the Marine that was killed at the School of Infantry. No, what happened? Yeah, and another Marine is in custody. You see one Marine killed, another taken into custody. There was a fight at the Camp Pendleton School of Infantry, according to the Marine Corps, and the San Diego Union-Tribune reports that a Marine was fatally stabbed by another Marine during this fight. Uh, an NCIS investigation has been opened and is currently ongoing. So the Marine Captain Joshua Pena told Marine Corps Times, uh, this is not good, man. Private First Class Ethan A. Barclay Weber Pal, who was assigned to Lima Company Headquarters and Services Battalion at School of Infantry West, was killed in the incident. He was 18 years old and had just entered the Marine Corps in July. Uh, so this was out at Camp Pendleton at the School of Infantry. Looks like another Marine in that same unit. They are not releasing the name right now. A fight broke out and there was a stabbing and it took the life of one Marine. I mean, that's, oh man, there's enough things that the Marine Corps has to deal with just as part of their job, taking on enemy fire, being the first to fight, and then having something like this when you're just in training and it's a Marine yeah. taking a, a knife to another Marine, taking his life. I mean, this is... This is horrifying stuff, really, and not and, something that we like to see. And this is going to lead to another investigation of things like, it's probably going to revolve around the recruiting process. Like, should this guy have been screened out? Or did he have a history of violence that the recruiter overlooked? Or something like, maybe did the drill sergeants not do enough to separate the two or whatever? But things, heads are going to roll. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, but again, you don't, I mean, you don't know. There could be anything. There could be outside things. I remember being in the in the military, being in the Navy, and seeing uh, two kids at one command in particular who were from Los Angeles and were both affiliated with different gangs before they came in. And they, as soon as they realized that, they, they were like, oh boy, you could tell something was going to happen. And eventually it did turn into a pretty big fight, and I believe both of them were kicked out of the Navy. Um, it, there can be outside influences that have nothing to do with the command. You just don't know. And there's also just crazy people. There's crazy people in all walks of life, including you, the military. Well, you're right. But then you got to remember that the, the, the military always looks for someone to blame. Yeah. That no matter what, like it's even the same thing with the Fitzgerald. It could be no one's direct fault. Like it could have been a, co a combination, a cocktail of failure, but 
someone's got to be blamed. We have to be able to point the finger at someone. Yeah, I think they have someone. The guy who had the knife in his hand in this case. Unless there's something else that the command knew there was something going on and put the guys together. This this doesn't... I, I don't know if this will end up being any sort of command thing. I mean, this is this sounds just like a, a crazy person. Again, Paul, who pulls a knife on a fight with another Marine? It just doesn't make any sense to me. But hey, that's probably because I never fought nor killed anybody that I worked with over there. Eh, oddly enough, a U.S. Navy veteran's mother was denied two visa requests to attend her son's funeral in Arkansas this past December. You see this young former sailor, Nagok Trong, left the Navy at 22 years old in October after serving for four years, planning to study graphic design in Florida. Diagnosed shortly after he left with leukemia and died in December. So, boy, that's a rough time. October, he gets out. December, he dies. His father is from Vietnam and lives in the States. His ex-wife still lived in Vietnam, and the State Department has not given any explanation as to, as to why right now, but she was denied a visa to come for the funeral. Um, you know, I, there could be any number of reasons there. But, again, we can look at this with the government and the military, public affairs and public relations Whenever I was in charge of public affairs and public relations at places that I worked at, I was as open as I possibly could be. Nope, not in this case. State Department's like, yeah, we're not going to tell you. We're not going to tell you why. Well, then that just looks bad. It looks like you just don't want a grieving mother to be able to grieve for her son at his funeral. One who just served in the military and got out, you know, three months ago and died within two months of that. It's, it's just tell us. Tell us what the reason is. If it looks bad for you, guess what? This looks bad for you. T saying that you're not going to tell us, that looks bad. If there's another reason that's bad, like just because, well, we, we decided that we didn't uh, like her and there's no good reason. I would imagine that they have a valid reason for this. They, you would think, you would hope. But if you don't tell us about it, uh, they said citing legal confidentiality reasons, they would not provide any further explanation. All right. Well, you know what? Then you're going to have these stories out there where it's going to be just, oh, you know, they didn't care about, uh, even though her son served in the United States military, they didn't care about this woman because she was a foreigner. And in the current uh, environment where everyone's trying to point fingers and prove who likes who and who hates who and who's this, who's that, who's a racist, who's a nationalist. Uh, this is going to add fuel to those uh, flames yep. when you don't tell people what the reason is. If you didn't have a valid reason, well, then that's, a, that's an important thing for us to know. If you did, that's also important. But right now, you know, now you've got things where his father is coming out and saying he's already done for this country, but what has this country done for him? Well, you know, right now, not so much because they wouldn't let his mother come and attend his funeral. So that's upsetting. And again, this PR stuff where I, I swear, man, they just put us in charge of public relations <laughs> for the military, the government, and the State Department. I, you know, where just like put me there and make me unfireable by like uh, until I do something wrong, and not just you know some senator, some secretary saying, oh, "No, no, 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 don't don't tell them about that. We don't need to tell them about this. Just quiet it up, and it'll go away." And I don't think that, that they understand how it really works. That it's 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 not good. Yeah, the, maybe back in the day you, you could get away with something like that, but in today's day and age with 24-hour news and the internet, no, things don't just go away. They're there forever. Yeah, and you have plenty of, uh, you know, also in the hyper-specific news world where you have, uh, you know, we always had military times, Navy times, Army times, Marine Corps times. We always had all those things uh, ready to cover the military items and events. 
Now they're online and there's a million others as well. There are you know, great ones like us, of course, ConnectingVets.com, where you should be going every day. Task and Purpose, that's another great. I mean, there's there are plenty of sites following things just like this. So if they don't, uh, I don't know, if they don't, if they thought they would get away with it because the news cycle would cover it, well, now there's this hyper-specific news focus where you have, you know, you go to Military Times, you go to Connecting Vets, you go to all these sites. That's what they focus on. So they're going to keep, this story is going to last a lot longer on those sites than it is on others. People interested in it are going to go there. It's going to get picked up by, it's the, the new media environment. You have to understand it. And I don't think that those in charge of public relations and public affairs at the government specifically in the military. Uh, also the, I, I don't think they get it. Part of that is because a lot of the people I'll tell you what, man, you go to a lot of the public affairs offices around the country, the big ones uh, within the government state department, everywhere else, the people running them, they have been in those types of positions for like 30, 40 years now. And they're still operating as they would have um, during uh, previous eras, which I don't think you can do right now. Um, so, you know, we'll see exactly what happens with that. Interesting thing from a place that's, uh, well, I don't know if it's near and dear to my heart, but it's a place that I lived, and that is Guam. They are now deploying B-52 bombers to Guam for only the second time in history. So Anderson Air Force Base, there are two military installations on Guam. You have Naval Station Guam, which is in the south, southern part of the island, and then uh, um, Anderson Air Force Base is way up north on the island. They've recently moved up stealth bombers, B-1s, and B-2s, and now the B-52s are joining them there. It's about a week after the B-2 stealth bombers. What's that, the B-52s? Yeah. Rock Lobster, Love Shack, all that stuff. That was a horrible joke. I apologize. Oh, that was a joke? I thought you were serious. I thought you were just a big fan of, uh, oh, what's that guy's name? Oh, I can't remember his name, the lead singer of the B-52s. His name was like uh, Jim Jim B-52 or something like that. Anyway, they're from uh, Barksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana. There are about 300 airmen going along with them, and they're going to support the U.S. Pacific Command over there, uh, replacing six B-1Bs, the Lancers, uh, that are supposed to go back to South Dakota at the end of this month. So, yeah, it, what people hear about guam or when they hear about guam i should say they often wonder like why are we in guam well the navy base is forward deployed base for submarines uh it's a stopping point occasionally for navy ships there are no permanently stationed surface ships in guam but we'd have ships come in time to time uh to the port uh, but it's mostly a submarine base those submarines are keeping an eye on china north korea the pacific theater in general kind of what they're doing and then anderson air force base allows a staging point for um basically quick reaction to anything that happens on the korean peninsula mainland china b-52 bombers can fly a long 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 way i mean there was time during the uh the what do you call it oh the war in iraq where they were taking off from the united states going over on bombing runs and flying back to the united states Really? Yeah, with like mid-air refueling and things like that. I don't know how exactly they were doing it, but they can travel a ridiculously long amount of time. Uh, it takes a long time, but yeah, they were. I think they were flying out of like the Dakotas or something and running, uh, doing runs over to Iraq and going back. It's it's crazy, but it's you know they're they're a necessity when it comes to bombing runs. And now with uh, the B fifty twos being in. Um, being in Guam, that gives us the opportunity again for quick reactions. If something were to happen on the North Korean uh, side of the Korean Peninsula, then you have these 
massive bombers that have huge long distance capabilities, they would easily be able to make it up to North Korea and back. I wonder now, see, now I want to look it up. <laughs> what is the B-52s? B-52. I don't know what the. Okay. So it's 159 feet long with a range of 8,800 miles. Wow. It, that's insane. 8,800 miles. How long? How how far across is the United States? I think uh, 3,000, 3,500, something like that. So we can fly back and forth uh, uh, across the country, <laughs> fly it from like the East Coast to the West Coast and back and still have 1,000 miles of fuel left. Yeah. That's insanity. They are uh, a pretty impressive thing. 185 foot wingspan, 159 feet long. Been around since 1955 and still has that 9,000 mile range. Whew, that's a long way to fly, man. So I think when you're talking about the ones that were in the Dakotas, I think they were flying west maybe over to Afghanistan and doing stuff there and then flying back to the Dakotas. I mean, it's crazy that they have the ability to do that, but it's pretty awesome that they do. And now they'll be able to do that from Guam, and it's a little bit shorter trip up to the Korean Peninsula. So keep that in mind, Mr. Kim Jong-un. B-52s are there, and we're not talking about the ones who sing Love Shack. We're talking about the ones who rain death and destruction mm-hmm. in large quantities. They're very good at that. We're very good at ConnectingVets.com of keeping our finger on the pulse of the military and veteran communities, and that's what we're doing here on The Morning Briefing. I want to remind you to follow us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and, of course, YouTube. Coming up in just a little bit, we are going to have... The executive director of AMVETS, Mr. Joe Chanelli, my former defense information school classmate. He's done pretty well for himself, rising to the number one post in the AMVETS organization. He's going to talk to us about everything they've got going on in just a couple minutes. And then later, I'm going to talk to Mr. Claude Barubi of the Annapolis Naval History Museum about a recent find that's pretty darn cool that they made. Morning briefing back after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing for Thursday, January 18th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer on the other side of the glass and ConnectingVets.com. It's your website. And we mean that. Created by veterans, for veterans, and focusing on the veteran and military experience. ConnectingVets.com is your one-stop shop for all things veteran-related. And the best way to be kept abreast of what we're doing on that website is to follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, little click of your mouse or tap on your phone will change your life for the better. And that's what we are all about. We're also all about bringing you the cool stories from out there. And as those of you who listen to the show regularly know, I'm a big time history nerd. The books that you got assigned in history class in high school and college that you hated reading, I buy those and read them for fun because I find that stuff fascinating. And this next story This is a story that the history nerds are going to geek out about, and even if you're not one, you're going to like this one, too. We're joined by Mr. Claude Bearby. He is from the United States Naval Academy. He's also currently serving the United States Naval Reserve, and we welcome him to the show now, and we're going to find out just a little bit about him. So first off, Claude, good morning, and thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. 
Correct me, it's always good to drive into the Imperial City once in a while. Yeah, to head into, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to head into the Beehive, as it were. So, as I mentioned, currently serving still in the Navy mm-hmm. Reserves. But tell us just a little bit about yourself, where you're from, when you joined, and what you do in the Navy. Sure. Uh, I grew up in New England, and I was a latecomer to the Navy. I thought I was going to go in uh, around 88, 89, but we were doing a drawdown. And I found later, many years later, a uh, direct commission. Program. So I came in as an intelligence officer, I think when I was of the ripe age of 33. Wow. And uh, been in since uh, with a couple of minor IIR breaks. And uh, it's been great. Served overseas with Expeditionary Strike Group 5. I was an intel officer on the Bunker Hill. Uh, served at UCOM at Jack Molesworth. Uh, and all told, in the past 18 years, I think I've spent eight and a half years on active duty. Not only great. as a naval officer, both on active duty and in the reserves, but you also right. instruct out at the Naval Academy, yeah, right? Teaching the, our yeah. young officers. Uh, I've been at the Academy for 12 years now. And prior to that, I worked at the Office of Naval Intelligence as a civilian. I worked on Capitol Hill a couple of times, and I worked as a contractor for Office of Naval Research. So kind of done a little bit of everything around uh, the general area here. When it comes to the Naval Academy and being there and seeing the young future officers of the Navy, those midshipmen, you see it every day as an instructor over mm-hmm. there. I, are you? Are you? How does it feel to be teaching the next generation of Naval leaders? And are you confident in their ability to lead the Navy? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, my my first day teaching there in two thousand five, uh, I almost actually got physically sick as I was about to enter the classroom because I said to myself. <laughs> You know, it's, it's like 7.55, and I had to be there in 30 seconds. And all I could think of was, I, I saw Patriot Games with Harrison Ford. He's talking to all these <laughs> midshipmen. They're really smart. What am I going to talk about for an hour and a quarter, much less an entire semester? Well, two things happened. I did walk into the classroom. Uh, but then I later learned that Patriot Games didn't use Naval Academy midshipmen. I think they used uh, ROTC kids from GW. Uh. So they weren't as intimidating, but I got to tell you, this is the best job I have ever had in my life. These young men and women, I've taught about 1,200 of them now. Uh, they, they, they're from all around the country. I've taught kids who grew up on Park Avenue. I, I've taught a kid who was, who uh, escaped the gangs of East LA, uh, and they are, they're both, they both turned out to be swos. These kids are just absolutely amazing and they're creative. They're fun. They're smart. They're hardworking. And it really is a pleasure to, I've, I haven't had a bad day in 12 and a half years over there. That's so when I look at the future of my Navy, you know, they're the ones who now inspire me. I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be inspiring them as an instructor, but they're truly the ones who, who drive me every day to do what I do and hope that I can impart some history geek information and, and especially in naval history. And having seen Patriot Games myself, I hope that the Irish don't come after you on the streets of Annapolis. <laughs> we actually, you know, with, uh, I used to be the officer rep for the Pipes and Drums, and uh, we got a couple of bagpipers, and we reshot that scene right outside of Gate 3. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, and uh, yeah. It's a beautiful town down there, a beautiful campus. For those who haven't had the opportunity to visit it, I highly recommend it. And one of the great things about the Annapolis campus is the museum, the U.S. Naval Academy Museum. And that's what we're actually going to talk to you about today because for all of the wonderful exhibits at the museum, it turned out that one of the most wonderful things about it was something they didn't even know that they had over there. And can you tell us about these flags that were recently found? Sure. So keep in mind that the museum has responsibility for about 60,000 artifacts. We're the oldest Navy museum in the country. And we had flags stored, uh, not stored, but they were displayed in a different building called Mahan. It's one of the oldest buildings on the yard. It's over 100 years old. And as part of a preservation project, these are trophy flags. So uh, President Polk, back in 1849, said any flags captured by naval forces will go to the United States Naval Academy. 
So we have responsibility for now about 300 of those foreign flags. A lot of them came from the War of 1812, the Spanish-American War. But then there are some minor incidences, minor incidents uh, comparatively. Uh, the Korean incident of 1871. There's a Chinese uh, piracy expedition in 1854. So essentially, these War of 1812 trophy flags were displayed for more than 100 years behind cases we couldn't access. We actually had to finally get the money to cut them away to take the flags down. Well, behind those flags, we had sort there were sort of rumors that there were other flags behind them. But because it was 1913, you know, the records were a little screwy back then. Hmm. But also, you know, if anything was there, they may have deteriorated over time. So a couple of months ago, we finally cut the cases, uh, the glass. We removed the War of 1812 British flags that were flying on the ships and exposed were these pristine flags. You know, I was worried it was going to be like Geraldo Rivera and Al Capone's, Al Capone's vault. Al Capone's you know, vault. And open it up, nothing's there. <laughs> but uh, the, the Korean expedition particularly, those flags were, were in the same condition that they were 140, uh, uh, 50 years ago now. Uh, and these were, some of them were guide-ons. So, you know, you went through ga- Great oh, Lakes. Yeah. So you had a guide-on, you know, standard so that the company would know where to march to, et cetera. Or you see this now in Vikings. I don't know if you watch that series, but uh, my wife series. has. I've watched some oh, of it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. yeah. <laughs> um, so we, they expose these, and so now we can then uh, display them. We're going to store some of them. Uh, we're going to have a rotation now of displaying them. But that's an extraordinary thing. It's sort of like being a meteorologist meteorologist during a blizzard or a hurricane. It's like, yeah, this is why you are head of the museum because you get to see these things being exposed for the first time in over a hundred years. And the extraordinary thing, midshipmen came from all over the yard just to watch the opening of these cases, but also subsequently uh, what these things looked like. We kept them up in place for a few hours, and we're going to be opening up a few more cases as well. It's amazing that these things can be there, and it sounds like they had maybe a, an idea that there was some stuff there. Mm-hmm. As you said, the Al Capone's vault worries. Yeah. turned out that uh, unlike uh, what Geraldo ran into, you guys ran into a mm-hmm. treasure trove here, including one yeah. that was taken from a Chinese pirate fort near Macau back mm-hmm. in 1854. Oh. What were some of the most interesting flags to you as, as a history buff yourself when you came through? Were there any, any that stuck out? No, that I'll tell you, that uh, that was the one that struck me. It's uh, When you look at it, it's a square flag with an, it's an octagon, uh, reddish, uh, with a number of Chinese markings. But this was an expedition uh, in 1854 where Lieutenant George Henry Preble takes a small steamer. He works with the British, Portuguese, and some Chinese authorities to deal with Chinese pirates between Macau and Hong Kong. I mean, they were plentiful. They had fortresses, and he actually launches an expedition along with these. So as somebody who had been to, uh, off of the Horn of Africa doing early uh, anti-piracy uh, stuff uh, on, a, on a ship, you know, that particularly intrigued me. Uh, so I've, I've got an article that's going to be coming out here in the next couple of weeks. So about that incident. There's so much to be gathered from history. And... I think in today's era where the Navy is, our Navy is so dominant on Mm -hmm. the seas, there's really, you can say there's some uh, competition, there's some threats to our Navy certainly Mm -hmm. out there, but overall, uh, our Navy is number one by a long shot. These flags are a throwback to when things were a little bit more even as far as the playing field on the seas, I would say, and show that, you know, battle battle at sea was such a bigger Mm -hmm. part of warfare in in days gone by. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. And, you know, keep in mind, you know, people say, well, you know, what, what's the big deal about flags? Well, you know, flags are so ingrained in us. Uh, you know, as kids, we play capture the flag. In popular culture, you've got musicals like Les Mis and what's behind 
uh, that iconic image is a French revolutionary flag. If you listen to Revolution's podcast, you know, every revolution starts off with a flag. Our history of flags is extraordinary as well. Uh, you know, in the military, you've got mourning colors. You've got the flags that drape, uh, you know, the caskets of those who gave the ultimate sacrifice. Flags are part of who we are because they symbolize something more. One of the most uh, powerful ones we have is the British Royal Standard. It's the only Royal Standard that was ever captured in combat. Wow. And it happened in York, Canada, which was uh, at that time the capital during the War of 1812. Well, we captured that flag, brought it to the United States. The following year, uh, the, the, the British invaded and burned Washington. So it was a retribution. Mm. So that flag represents not only our ability to capture an, a, a foreign capital, but also one that has consequences against our own. Truly fascinating stuff. We're speaking with Claude Baraby, who's from the United States Naval Academy. He's an instructor there. He's an author, currently serving as a naval intelligence officer in the Navy Reserves, and also works with the Naval Academy Museum. And this, of course, a big story, got a lot of play, it was on yeah, Fox News, a lot mm -hmm. of other places. But the Naval Academy Museum has a lot more than just these mm -hmm. flags, doesn't it? What, what do you think is, beyond this, let's say the most interesting thing that you find about the Naval, Naval Academy Museum or the thing that you think people would enjoy the most visiting? A couple. I mean, of course, we have the, uh, more flags like the don't give up the ship flag from mm -hmm. the War of 1812. But our entire second deck are British dockyard models. These are two to 350 years old. We don't have as many as England does. These are the ones, these are the models that were built at the same time as the ships themselves. Right. So we know exactly what they look like on a, on a scale level. Uh, so that helps me teach naval history from a very different perspective. And, you know, the same problems that the Royal Navy had 300 years ago, the same problems we're dealing with today, strategy, personnel, weapons, uh, you know, you name it, naval architecture. Uh, so that is the best collection people will see outside of England uh, on the first deck, which is the history of the United States Navy, we've got everything from uh, the original Mameluke sword, which becomes the basis of the United States Marine Corps sword, uh, which was taken by a midshipman man uh, during the Battle of Derna and the uh, Tripoli War. Uh, you know, we've got our sword collection is is probably second to none in terms of the Navy. We've got Stephen Decatur's presentation swords. Uh, we've got a number of items from the Monitor versus the Merrimack, the original wow. wheel of the USS Hartford during the Battle of Mobile Bay, and so many. I'll tell you, we, we display about 1,400 items. I would recommend somebody take at least two hours to, to walk through the museum because there's that much material. And we also have a lot of material online. Uh, on YouTube, we've got, uh, if you go to USNA Museum, you'll see a history of the Navy and 100 objects from the Naval Academy Museum. And these are uh, four to 10 minute vignettes people can watch about a particular item in the context of that item. You know, most museums that I'm aware of have a certain number of things on display and actually have more that's not on display mm -hmm. than they have on display at any one time. So that kind of makes them, uh, for one, uh, a return visit destination where, you right. know, if you go to the if you go to the, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, they have stuff that's on display now that's not going to be six months from now and things that aren't on display that are going to be. Is that the way that it works at the Naval Academy as well? Absolutely. And we have a couple of rotating galleries. Uh, we're doing, uh, an, we've got one uh, exhibit right now on World War One commemorating 100 years. Right. And on November 11th of 2018, we will have a silent ceremony, uh, just like the uh, silencing of the guns. 100 years ago. Uh, and then we're going to replace that with uh, the history of Navy and space. We're working with the Naval Research Lab, but we're also going to do one on Philo McGiffin, one of my favorite graduates of the Naval Academy, graduated 1882, had so many demerits that he couldn't get a commission. <laughs> so he went to China, got a commission with them, helped found their Naval Academy, and ended up commanding, the. he was the first American to command a modern warship in battle 
in the Sino-Japanese War. Hmm. And the story of Philo McGiffin is, is really extraordinary as well. So we're going to tell his story of Philo McGiffin in China. And we're going to be able to use things that we haven't seen in a while. And we do that with, with every exhibit. We actually uh, tried to do it with our Navy Con, which was a science, a Navy's and science fiction one, but uh, we didn't get quite that far. We just, <laughs> we just had the convention for a day. It was great. One of the things about this story with the flags, the, mm -hmm. the flags that were recently unearthed that hadn't been seen in really about 100 years or so, that I wasn't expecting before you came in here, but hearing it about how the midshipmen came out to see this happen, I think that's one of the interesting things where this is a museum that's also at a learning institution. And I think there are people out there who worry that the youth of today have no interest in history, that mm -hmm. they don't think they can learn much from history. And to be honest, during my college experience, which was in my 30s, I saw a little bit of that. Yeah. I saw a little bit of people saying, well, history's boring. I don't want to mm -hmm. do this. It, it kind of warms my heart a little bit to hear that the uh, the middies at the academy, anyway, were very interested in this. Yeah, well, we're a teaching museum, but it's also incumbent on us to expand the interest of the museum to the midshipmen, not just for, for naval history. For example, we were uh, given a, a pair of Japanese field artillery glasses from the Battle of Iwo Jima, and I got a couple of physics majors to take to strap them on their back. They're seventy pounds. They took them up to the top, the highest, uh, um, actually it was second highest place at the academy, and they put eye charts across the river. And based on elevation, distance, etc., they were able to reconstruct reconstruct the capability of these particular field glasses. So he, they said the Japanese could see every Marine coming ashore wow. at Iwo Jima. We have another project ongoing with chemistry majors where they're assessing uh, the uh, dyes and pigments and paint uh, for some of our launching flags that were painted two, 300 years ago. Uh, so we're really trying to work more. We've, we're working with the languages department. They've, the midshipmen uh, who are Russian majors, they've spoke, they've done Mandarin and Spanish. We now have a foreign language audio tour for 30 objects in the museum. So these are midshipmen who learned these languages at the academy. They translated this for us. They, they transcribed them for us. Uh, they recorded them. And so now somebody from Spain or Russia can pick up their, you know, scan the QR code and listen to a midshipman speak their language that they learned <laughs> at the Naval Academy. And the mids always come back and say, we didn't realize that, you know, being language majors or physics majors, we would be able to work with our naval heritage. So that's responsible. Uh, that's responsibility we have as well. So it's not just the midshipmen. It's 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 us to make sure that they are intrigued and it is relevant to what they are doing. Uh, we had uh, an event on damage control and leadership where we had the captains of the USS Samuel B. Roberts and the Cole come in and, and speak to the midshipmen about how do you deal with a crisis. And those are important things, and a lot is being taught. And it sounds like you guys almost have a self-contained uh, research unit down there as well with the middies uh, contributing to Absolutely. the museum at the Naval Academy Museum. And we're speaking with Claude Barabee, who is from the Naval Academy. He's an instructor there. He's also a Naval Reserve Intelligence Officer and an author. And since we're on the subject of history, I wanted to ask you about one of your books in particular. And that's because I've been to the USS Constitution I've been on board of it. I've actually slept at the old Marine Corps barracks up there <laughs> one night. And the Constitution, of course, many people in the Navy and, and even outside of it know is the oldest vessel still on the Navy rolls. It's still technically a commissioned warship. I know a little bit about the Constitution from mm -hmm. having been there and visited it. But I think one of the interesting things that we forget about is that there were men who served on board the Constitution. And you wrote a book called A Call to the Sea about Captain Charles Stewart of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. 
it's fascinating to me to think about like this this ship that's still there. People are still going onto it. Everybody knows the Constitution. We don't know that much about those who served on board. So what can you yeah. tell us about Captain Stewart and what life was like aboard the Constitution? Sure, that was my the first of five books that I wrote, and uh, I love Charles Stewart because nobody had written about him. He had a career that was that spanned uh, from 1798 to 1860. So he had one of the longest careers in the Navy. He commanded more ships than anybody else in U.S. Navy history. He commanded the Constitution for a longer period during wartime, the War of 1812, than anybody else in American history. Uh, an extraordinary individual who had fought. He had his first command at 21 during the Quasi War, uh, fought during the Barbary War, uh, but during uh, he he was an extraordinarily capable officer who was able to. For, for the sailors out there, one of the most difficult things you can do with a sailboat is back, essentially back the ship. He backed the Constitution. He basically stopped and essentially, more or less, reversed course. <laughs> uh, and as one of the ships passed him by, just took another broadside. He's, he took on two ships simultaneously. The only problem is that it was about a month and a half after the Treaty of Ghent had been signed. And they knew the <laughs> Treaty of Ghent had been signed. They'd been advised of this off the African coast. But he, pers- he continued to pursue British ships because he understood the Constitution document, not just the ship. Right. Because under the Constitution, he said, well, wait a minute. We're still fighting because the Treaty of Ghent has been signed, but the treaty has not been ratified by the Senate. So we, the war still continues for us. So here's a guy who understood <laughs> letter of the, law. the letter of the law. And Jefferson had mentioned that of him uh, 10 years pre- previously when he kept us out of a war. Absolutely fascinating stuff. And when you look at the uh, the portrait on the cover of that book, just a fancy dresser too. And it is here. Yeah, <laughs> you, you think he's Napoleon when you when you but the stance and everything. If, yeah. if you're in D.C., go to the National Gallery of Art. You will see that painting, and it is about eight or ten feet tall. It's 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 incredible. I I actually spent about an hour just looking at that, trying to evaluate it for the book. And now all we do is take an eight by ten yeah. of our commanding officer and stick it on a photo. Book. I want this when I retire. You're responsible for this. You find an artist. I want a portrait. An and, you know, oil a bi- painting. An oil painting in a bicorn, and you know the epaulets. That's what I want. I want a fancier hat than that. I want like an eight point <laughs> hat. I want one that just looks, everybody who sees it will know. It'll have shiny things on it and everything. You know, there is so much to learn from history when it comes to people like Captain Stewart, when it comes to these flags that were recently unearthed at the Naval Academy Museum. And looking at those specifically, Claude, do you think that there's anything besides just the cool factor to these mm-hmm. flags that people can take from actually going and seeing them or learning about where these flags came from? Yeah, it's about understanding the context of of the conflicts, uh, B.J. Armstrong, Commander B.J. Armstrong of our Department of History, just wrote a great piece for War on the Rocks I would recommend about the Korean incident and the flags because he provides the context. And then as uh, Korea becomes in the new, more and more in the news, it, it provides some historical context that I think is very important. So it's not just the flag, the coolness of the flags themselves. Everybody has, it's like the, the Rorschach test. Right. You know, the conservators are like, well, how did they sew this? The historians will say, well, when was this captured and how? Uh, the political scientists will say, what does it mean? Hmm. Also with historians too, but yeah. So it, there's, there's something for everybody. There is. And really also some beauty. I mean, when we mm-hmm. think of flags these ways, these days, there's mostly your geometric shapes, your stars, your stripes, your bars, different things on there. A lot of these are, yeah. had a little bit more artistry to them. Yeah. I would suggest uh, to all of you, go to the U.S. U.S. Naval Academy Museum Facebook page. Go back to early December, and you will see photos of these a, a number of these flags, especially the Korean flags. The color is still there. The, you'll see the 
the dragons. I Looking mean, it's at just that one incredible. right now. Yeah. This, this dragon with uh, pink wings and, mm-hmm. and the clouds around it are, are very artistic and everything about those flags. And, I mean, they're crazy. Right. And we brought in somebody who's an expert on the, well, an expert uh, uh, from the languages and cultures department. And you'll see a video also, a couple of videos on our Facebook page uh, from them discussing what the meaning was behind the flags themselves. What what does the dragon uh, connote? What it, what are the other symbols? So you'll see that on our Facebook page as well. And she did that as we were unveiling these. When it comes to flags that were captured from other nations, some of those nations could look at those as part of their history. Do you think there's any question about someone maybe trying to come and retrieve those flags? Yeah, actually, uh, South Korea had asked for a long time for uh, the General Lissimo flag. It was the General's flag of 1871, and they do have it on long-term loan right now in Seoul. Mm. Uh, the Canadians have uh, in the past asked for the British Royal Standard. Uh, Jimmy Carter was considering returning it in return for, um, I think, uh, hostages who came out of Iran. Oh. But, you know, you you know, I hate to say finders keepers, but, you know, they, a lot it, of Canada, other, yeah, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of other countries have things that are ours as well. Right. Uh, so it's really, as, as long as we respect each other's heritage, I, you know, we take care of these. I know the Canadians, the British take care of things that they have that, that were American, uh, and we all work together and that's the important story. You know, we're, we're working with the Canadians and British right now on a couple of things and, you know, time may not necessarily heal all wounds, but it helps us to understand each other and work together. Right. And the museum communities are known for that. There's a right. lot of things that go on loan. There have been, oh, who was the, uh, the Pharaoh that I remember when I was a kid, the, oh, the exhibit uh, was King traveling. Tut. There you go. King yeah. Tut was traveling around. It was in New York. I grew up outside of New York city and it was there and I got to go see that. So, so educating that is, people. And that's the, that's the thing We're you know, we're a public service. We're not just teaching midshipmen. Part of our uh, responsibility as director of the Naval Academy Museum is to inform the general public on what the Navy has done for the past 200 plus years. And doing a great job of teaching those midshipmen. And I know that because every Naval Academy graduate knows everything. As <laughs> 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 soon as they get out, they know everything that there is to know. Thanks to great instructors like Claude at Barabay, who is an instructor at the Naval Academy and is also uh, currently serving as a Reserve Naval uh, Intelligence Officer and is talking to us about these flags that were uncovered after almost 100 years. Do you think that there's a lesson to be learned? Last question for finding these things that you didn't know were there. Should museums be checking a little bit deeper when they look uh, look through their uh, collections? Yeah, I, actually, I think that the larger lesson is the value of of our collective heritage. You know, I look at uh, places in the Middle East which have lost so much of their heritage mm. out of conflict. You look at the, the libraries that have been destroyed. Yeah. Uh, you know, the preservation of our history and understanding ourselves is, is I think, paramount. Yeah, you can look at places like Palmyra in yeah, Syria. Yeah, that's where, exactly. I mean, the, yeah. the professor who was there, the archaeologist who basically uh, was willing to give his life to yeah. try and protect these things and keep them secret. Um, thankfully, we don't have to deal with anything like that here, but there is still an onus on us to keep our heritage and our history alive, whether it comes to the military, whether it comes to our nation, or the world's finest Navy like they are over at the Naval Academy Museum. And we want to thank Claude Barabee for coming over here and talking to us about this this morning, this wonderful find that they've made. And if people want to go and check it out, Claude, where should they go and how can they uh, sign up to do that? Go to the United States Naval Academy, bring your photo ID. We are open 362 days a year except Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, or find us on our website at 
at the Naval Academy or uh, Facebook. We post a lot of inf a lot of uh, pieces there too. A lot of great information there, and a lot of great information here on the morning briefing. We want to thank Joe Chanelli of Amvets and of course Claude Barabe from coming in from the Naval Academy. Coming up tomorrow, we have Eric Mitchell from Life Flip Media and the VFW, and a lot more. Tune in. See you then. Morning briefing out. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.